being being confident on the start line is probably the number one predictor of race performance. That Triathlon Show, Episode 7. Welcome back to That Triathlon Show, a podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. As always, I'm your host, Michael Erickson. And today we're back with another interview episode where my guest is none other than Jim Vance, who many of you will be familiar with. Before I introduce Jim, let me do a quick rundown of the past few episodes that we've had for those of you who are new to the podcast, so you can go back and listen to them. In episode six, I did a solo episode where I I went over several racing tips that you can use to really maximize your performance within the races so it was all about how to run bike and swim faster and and having a better race in general some psychology was in there as well things that you can use simply to go faster in races in episode five we had ben canute professional triathlete olympic athlete on and that was really really good one interesting to hear about how ben has been training throughout his career and episode four was with wendy mader That was how to get started in triathlon and with swimming, biking, and running as a beginner triathlete. So for you beginners out there, I highly recommend going back and listening to that one. So Jim Vance is an elite-level coach. He's a former pro triathlete himself, and he's an author of three books, or two books, and co-editor of one. So he has written Run With Power, which is all about running power meters, Triathlon 2.0, which is the main topic of today's interview, data-driven triathlon training and then he has co-edited triathlon science together with joe friel who was on the show in episode one jim coaches elite level triathletes as i said among others ben canute go back to episode five to listen to the interview with ben and he also coaches a lot of juniors he's the head coach of formula endurance which is a usat high performance team focused on developing youth and junior elite triathletes and he coaches swimming at a high school level and uh, i think that's pretty much the most important stuff covered about jim the interview today is pretty long because we have a lot of stuff to cover in addition to data-driven triathlon training we also go into running power meters and that was a really exciting part of this interview i think so let's dive right in and meet jim the first question related to data-driven triathlon training is what are the benefits of it? Can you can you give a brief um, definition of uh, what you see data-driven training as and what the benefits of it are? Sure. Well, it's really a record of the truth of what's happening in training. So many athletes, I tend to find, only think they're as good as their last workout sometimes or their last race and, uh, you know, or really don't understand why they're doing certain training, maybe training according to peer pressure or certain things, or, I mean, every athlete reaches a plateau at some point. There's just, they've reached a point where they are not going to get better if they continue with the stimulus they're on. And uh, data just helps you really find what that point is and be able to make changes to, to adjust the training so that you can have that next breakthrough. Or at least understand, you know, hey, this is a time when you need to rest, or, you know, this is a time when you need to change the type of, of workouts you're doing. So, 
that's really the benefit of it. I can tell you most people think that I'm just all about numbers and data, but really I'm a, I would say my bias as a coach is in the mentality of my athletes. Being confident on the start line is probably the number one predictor of race performance. If the athlete is excited to race on the start line, confident and pumped up, ready to go, they're likely to have a great race. And data is what I find helps eliminate all the subjectivity of training and makes it more objective so athletes can see that they're successful, you know, gain confidence from that, gain a sense of fulfillment from all the training they're doing. And uh, that, in the end, is what I believe really leads to performance in races. That's a good answer. And you mentioned there about breaking through plateaus, using data. Is, that is obviously one thing that you can benefit from. But is it also applicable for beginners that are just starting out in triathlon? Can they make a faster progress in the sport by using data compared to if they weren't to use it? Sure, sure. The, um, I think the, this misnomer that data is only for the elite or for the highly technical is is clouding <laughs> the the use of data data doesn't necessarily have to come from a power meter in the book i talk about we all have certain data points how fast we run our neighborhood loop you know that's a data point for you personally certain hill that you climb on your bike you get the time from the bottom to the top of it or something of that nature something that's an objective marker for you those are the types of metrics that I find are, are still very valid data points for athletes. And if those data points continue to improve, then athletes can be very successful. It doesn't necessarily have to be the, the latest power meter or sleep monitor or something crazy like that. It's, it can be very simple data, but certainly taking some sort of data and objective measurement to see how you're progressing is the key. That's a very good point that it doesn't have to be anything more than those simple simple data points that we're so used to. There's, I guess, a reason for it. They've been around for a long time and uh, they're proven to be effective. Like just times around the loop uh, yeah, is, uh, even is excellent. Test sets in the pool. Yeah. You know, if you're swimming in the same pool all the time and you're getting faster, well, that's great. If you're not getting faster, that's when you got to stop. You got to say, okay, why am I not improving? And that's, yeah. that's really what the book does. The book is all about hey, here's some ways to monitor your progress. And if you're not seeing certain trends, then it's time to stop and reassess your plan and, and, your, and your focus. Hmm. And one other thing that you mentioned in your book is uh, that some coaches seem to be biased towards really old school training and, and not really adopt that driven mindset at all. And, and you mentioned that they might get left behind sooner rather than later. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Sure. What I tend to find are coaches that, that reject any type of data tend to be the ones who want athletes to believe that there's a magic formula and only they have it. They want there to be some type of mystery. They don't want them to figure it out. And I tend to find, quite honestly, they, they don't like accountability because if the data shows that the athlete is not improving and the athlete goes out and has a poor race, well, the coach can easily say if there's no data, well, you just raced poorly. You didn't do it right. It's like, well, no, we can look at the training and show that the training really didn't prepare them properly. So uh, I would say beware of the coach that resists all data. Okay, that's a good tip for everybody who's coached them. Yeah, excellent. So moving on to the different disciplines, swimming, biking, and running, what data points and things do you look at in the three disciplines? Well, what's important what's not so important that some triathletes might still be collecting right now for their data analysis? The data that's critical to you is all based on your goals. 
you know, if you if you want to finish an Ironman, that's the the data and and what what thresholds uh, within that within those metrics need to be met are a lot different if you are a finisher versus if you want to win the race. So everything is goals oriented. You've got to understand: Am I a forty year old female trying to make you know, the seventy point three worlds? Am I a sixty year old male trying to make Kona? Am I you know am I you know a twenty three year old trying to become an elite? All those things affect what data is most important and and why. The test set that you need in the pool to be competitive in an elite race is a lot different than the test set you need in the pool just to prove that you can you can break the cutoff. So uh, those you know those are the types of things that I think uh, people really need to understand. What are my goals, and what tests or what metrics are important to me to achieve those goals? Is it threshold power? Is it three-hour power? Is it simply, for some athletes, it's mass. What's their mass? Their mass needs to come down, and that will help them a lot. That's the most important metric to maybe look at in their training. So, though, like I say, it all comes back to goals. It doesn't really matter. There's not one swim test I do. There's not one bike test that I do or run test. Everything is different. I coach uh, a U.S. Olympian, Ben Canute, who was in Rio. The types of things we're doing and the test sets that we're creating are are entirely based now upon the goals of the things we're, we're working on in training. You know, we want to continue to improve his run and his speed. So, we're you know, the types of test sets that we're creating, we, we line up to match with what we think is important in, in those race demands. So to, that's a long-winded way of saying the data is only is only relative to your actual goals. Okay, so is that something that you'd want to disclose or be able to disclose? What kind of data do you look at for Ben Canute? And then could you compare that to, say, an age trooper who has been doing triathlons for a couple of years and want to, wants to break 230 for the Olympic distance for the first time? Oh, well, somebody that wants to break 230 for the Olympic distance, I mean, that's also going to be course-dependent. Are they wanting to do certain things? And what's their background? Are they, are they a swimmer first? Are they a are they not a swimmer? Are they are they a runner? Are they a cyclist? With Canute, Canute was a swimmer. So, and right now we're working a lot on his uh, swimming. Uh, well, on his uh, footwork. So actually, we're having him do one test that we're doing is a mile on the track. You know, so we're going to track that and see how he's doing. And because we feel that that's correlated to him running a fast 5K. So that's just one example of, of the type of test set. And we'll we'll continue to monitor that. He has done FTP tests. He's done some other types of tests that USA Triathlon wants us to do to monitor. And they can compare with some of the athletes they've seen and they know. So, uh, yeah, that's about what I can share. All right. And can you also share how often you do those kinds of tests with somebody like Ben and uh, how often would you recommend an, a regular age group or do, do tests? I guess it depends as well, but are there any ballpark numbers? That we, you do, we do some different testing about every cycle, which lasts about four weeks, three to four weeks. So I would say that it's more relative to timeline. And I mean, again, going back to the goals, if the goal is simply to lose mass, well, you can test every day. You can step on a scale and see how that's going. So certainly you... Uh, I think if you go in, a de you want a decent amount of time. You can't make every workout a test workout because there has to be some type of recovery. So I do think, though, it's important to do that within every uh, cycle or every so often. Okay, so let's move on to some more advanced and, uh, in a way, training peak-specific metrics that you talk a lot about in your book. But a lot of triathletes these days are using training peaks, especially the ones that are working with a coach 
and uh, just because it's a great software and that there's so much that you can do with it. And one of the main pillars of Training Peaks is the performance management chart. Can you elaborate a bit on what the performance management chart is and uh, how it's based on training stress score? That's maybe the best place to start and what you use it for. So the PMC is basically a, a long-term, it's a big 10,000-foot view, or I guess that'd be about 3,000-meter view for all the metric listeners, where you can see training. You can see it as a whole. You can watch it develop. You can break it into phases and see the way intensity changes or the way load changes. And then one of the things we can also do is we can kind of highlight certain metrics within a PMC chart to see where the best performance has happened relative to, to training. So the PMC, the CTL is, is the thing most people look at, and that's chronic training load. So all it says is what's the basic training stress that you're able to hold over a long period of time? If you've been able to hold a very large training stress over a long period of time, chances are you're pretty fit. Now, that doesn't guarantee fitness because certainly you can reach a very high CTL chronic training load and overtrain yourself. So, and in the book, that's what I try to look at. I think so many athletes, especially as they train, they try to look at Ironman training or 70.3 training as volume. Like it's all about volume. Well, that's not really the case. It's about performance. If, if more training was better then whoever did the most training would win, you know, the best Ironman athletes would be Ultraman athletes. The best Olympians would be Ironman guys. So that's not really how it works. In Triathlon 2.0, I try to give athletes a sense of, and coaches, because it's for coaches as well, of understanding what the range is. What's a range of chronic training load that's good enough for an athlete? And then work on trying to get the best quality of training out of that load. So a PMC chart does that and it monitors fatigue. You can kind of see how fatigue is based upon short-term training stress. Like if your long-term training stress of six weeks has been uh, 70 TSS, training stress score as we call it, and then suddenly you have a seven-day period where your average is 100, well, that's quite a bit large. That's quite large compared to what you're used to long-term. So you can understand that the athlete would be fatigued. And then, of course, tapering and being prepared to perform your best is about minimizing or reducing fatigue, but while maintaining fitness. And the PMC chart helps you do that with what we call training stress balance. Right. And uh, when you talk about those ranges, can you give us some, for example, take Ironman as an example, what, what would uh, a mid-packer have as a goal range and somebody trying to qualify for Kona? Well, again, that's going to be age and gender-based and goals-based. So, you know, the type of training required by a 40-year-old male is a lot different than a 60-year-old female trying to make Kona. So you have to take that into account. And also the individual athlete. Like if I come into the sport as a very strong cyclist, well, then the amount of cycling training I need to perform at a high level is different than an athlete who comes in mostly as a runner and now has to build their cycling or a swimmer. And then you can interchange all those sports individually. So there are some, they're in the book. Honestly, I try to remember off the top of my head. I want to say it's anywhere from about 20 to 30% if you want to try to qualify for Kona and of a CTL relative to your functional threshold power on the bike if you're a if you're in that 30 to 40 year old male range. So that's one example. But the book has the book has a lot. And and I'll be honest, I've had people email me and say, well, you know, I didn't reach your thresholds and I made Kona. And I'm a 24 year old male and I only reached 12 to 14% CTL relative to my functional threshold power. 
And so I'd say, okay, well, what's your functional threshold power on the bike? And they'd say, well, it's 330. I'm like, well, you're kind of an outlier. So not too many athletes have a 330 watt functional threshold power. So that becomes really important for, for people to understand there's an individual part of this. And, and it assumes even in the book that you're competitive in the swim. If this is, you know, if you're within this range, if you can't make the swim cut off, it doesn't matter how, you know, what your bike CTL is, you're not even going to get to the bike. So you have to keep those types of things in mind. I don't really in the book discuss Olympic distance because there's just so much variance within courses and types and even the types of athletes relative to their goals. You know, are you trying to get to ITU worlds? Well, you know, what you can do, it's such a shorter race compared to 70.3 and Ironman that there really is no norm because you can train entirely differently. And one thing that, that came to mind now that you mentioned the swim is that you suggest not using the swim or that this uh, the PMC for, for swimming doesn't really have much relevance because we we don't really know too much about that yet. So it's better to focus on, on the run and the bike. So is that a correct understanding? I think swim swim technology in terms of using it to to really define training stress is, is difficult. If you travel a lot and you're in different pools, one pool is not the same as another. Just even the temperature of the pool can be different. You can't say, well, I swam fast in this pool today and then over in that pool, it, it could be a slower pool. If it's a shallow pool that's hot versus a deeper pool that's that's at a good temperature, well, you're going to perform differently. How many people are in the pool in a small pool can affect how fast you swim, but it isn't necessarily reflective of the effort because you get a lot of people in a shallow pool, that water moves around a lot, you face a lot more resistance. Open water, you can't really use open water because you've got currents. You know, you, know, you could swim across, across the lake and if it's in a strong wind against the current, well, you're probably gonna swim pretty slow. So it's not really reflective of that. Yeah, and uh, one thing that you also spend a lot of time on in the book is how to use data to actually plan your race performance. So can you, can you explain that a bit? You mean tapering? Well, I was actually referring to oh, okay. uh, what to, to the TSS requirement sure. for for the bike, for example, and for the run as well. And but yeah, you can sure. go into so, tapering as well. Sure. So, well, I mean, you can once you have a taper that's successful, you can go back and look at that and define it down to a number in your training stress balance to know exactly what what was I at on that day when everything clicked right. And then you can take that template and define it by TSS per day. For your workouts and replicate that almost identically perfectly every time you go to race so that's one of the great tools about tss and data is now you know you're, you're not sitting there thinking oh well what did i do last time well now you can actually plan it out according to numbers and say no this is the workout this is about this is the tss number it needs to be relative to you know where i'm at and i'll come in and perform well so it's really good at just defining the specifics of your taper, where you place your intensity and how much intensity is enough. In general, we do know that a bike in a, in a 70.3 probably needs to be around 170 to 190 TSS. And if you fall in that range, you're pretty good. So you can go out and train and do workouts that put you in that 170 to 190 range and, and see, okay, how well do I run off that? Now, 170, 190 TSS range, that's just a TSS. It's not really indicative necessarily of how you do that. I mean, if you got if you got the hundred TSS in the first hour, you pretty much are toasted. So it is important in how you train and race, but uh, in terms of pacing and things. 
but it's a good way to get your body to know, okay, if I go out and I execute this workout that I think is specific to 70.3 intensity, and I finish with with a range of about 170 to 190 in the TSS for the workout, then I know that I've prepared myself pretty well. And I know that if I come off that and I do a transition run and I'm successful, then I know that I'm preparing myself well for, for my racing. So you can do that for biking in 70.3 or Ironman. You can, you just got a lot of, a lot of different opportunities for that. And the book has some specific numbers that I found really interesting. And any athlete that's planning a 70.3 or an Ironman can go and have a look at that. I'm sure that will be of much use for them. So other than the things that we've talked about now, or if there's something that you want to elaborate on further, talking about Triathlon 2.0 specifically, is there anything that, that you want to mention and tell the listeners about the book or about data-driven training in general? Sure. I've been really pleased with the book and its, its reception. I think last I saw here in the States on Amazon, it had had almost 20 reviews and um, I think everyone but one was a five star. So it's been, it's been exceptionally well received. It's being translated to Chinese and Spanish. I would expect it'll probably be translated to German soon. Run With Power is now being translated also. It's already been translated to German and is working on Spanish and Chinese as well. So I've been really pleased with the reception you know, at first when you write a book and you start putting a lot of numbers into it, there are a lot of numbers in that book. It took me four years to write that book almost. The reason being because I wanted to give some sort of guidance in terms of metrics and values. So I, I would reach a point in the book where I would say, okay, well, it'd be really great if I could assign a number range for athletes here, but I didn't have it. So I'd have to go out and research it. And then I'd have to come back and add that. And then I'd move on in the book and come to the same thing. So I'm pretty confident in the, in the numbers, but you know, as the sport changes, more athletes come in, athletes get faster and better, new types of courses come in, things could change. So different types of athletes maybe come into the sport as well. So it's it's going to be, uh, you know, it these numbers I don't think will always apply necessarily in 20, 25 years from now. But I think the processes that I introduce in the book of the way athletes can really step back and analyze their training and put, put a threshold. Well, okay, in the year that I did well, I reached this for my CTL for my bike. I reached this for my CTL for the run. And in the year that I didn't perform well, I reached a higher CTL for both those. Well, that tells you something. You Maybe you overcooked yourself and overtrained or maybe under. So I think it really gives athletes the tools to understand, oh, here's what I need to go back and assess or, or see are my benchmarks. And how well does my success correlate with those benchmarks? based on their age, their gender, and their goals. And once they have that, now you start to really nail down training. You know exactly what type of training is you're, you respond well to, maybe what you don't respond well to. You can set training goals a lot better and just much more clear. And now that you have a clear path, you're not questioning everything you do all the time. So, or you're not training according to peer pressure because your buddies are doing this ride every Saturday, so you're gonna go do that. Now you know, no, I'm not gonna go do that. I'm gonna go do the workout that matters for me that helps me reach my goals and makes me successful. So I think that's the best part about the book is it really gives athletes the tools to, to know themselves better, understand how their training response is and helps them be more successful because of it. And uh, please remind me to go and write another five-star review on Amazon for your book because <laughs> I haven't get, gotten around right. to do it yet, but I'll do that. All right. Well, thank you. And uh, you also mentioned your book, Running With Power, and um, intentionally left it out from this interview because we could talk for so long about that as well. But 
So I'll link in the show notes to some other resources that you have on uh, that you have written and and some interviews that you've done on Run with Power, so the listeners can look a bit more about that. But just very briefly, where do you think we are at the moment with Running with Power in terms of how close we are to really getting to be able to use it really effectively and benefit from it, or is it something that you already recommend that triathletes start using right now? Well, we're very close. I think that it, it really just depends on how successful you are in terms of actually, you know, recording data for yourself and then looking at it and seeing, okay, when I responded well to this type of training, what happened with my power values? What happened to my pace? For those people that are unfamiliar, your listeners and watchers that are unfamiliar with power meters for running, it's not like cycling. It's not about how, how much power can I produce? Yes, the more power you produce, the greater work rate you can sustain. Chances are the, you know, the better you'll be, or at least the longer you'll be able to hold, hold that work rate. But it's more about speed per watt. How fast am I going for the watts that I'm producing? So that relationship is critical. And that's really the big difference. When we ride a bike, and we see a power meter, a power value on our bike, that bike is just telling us the power that's that's actually being utilized to move yourself forward. It's not, you're doing other work. You're, there's absolutely more work that's going on, but what's being applied to the bike to move it successfully forward, that's what that power meter is showing you. So every watt that you see on your power meter on a bike is a good watt. It's, a, it's an effective watt. In running, that's not the way it is. It's, you, know, you can have higher watts, but that doesn't mean you're running faster. We have different types of power, vertical power, lateral power, horizontal power. Well, you have to have some type of vertical power because you have to lift your body off the ground in order to run forward. If you don't come off the ground, you're not really running and you're not moving from the space. So now, but we all know when we have a lot of vertical oscillation, that's high vertical power. Well, at some point, that's not effective. That's not what we want. We just need enough vertical power. So, so I could jump up and down really high and have excellent power numbers, vertical power, but I'm not going anywhere. So my, my horizontal power is zero. So I'm not a very good runner. You know, and my pace is zero because I'm not changing direction. I'm not really running forward. So that's kind of power meters in a nutshell for running. But what we are finding, and this is something that I've been writing about. I wrote it on Training Peaks, and I'm, I'm working a little bit more on it. I think there are some new ways that we can really, as we begin to learn some of the, some more things with this technology, and, and the technology has even changed since the book was published. I mean, not changed, but new metrics are coming out and we're learning more and in their application. I think power meters for running help really define intensity very well because the work that you have to do is not just about the pace, but how hard you have to work to create that pace. And at some point, we all become exponential in the work required to increase pace. But it's just different for all of us where that is, even if our relative abilities are the same. So there's that. There's also, in what I wrote on Training Peaks was, we took Matt Russell, who was, I want to say Matt was 11th in Kona this year. And I think he was just second in Cozumel, uh, uh, Ironman. We took his power file because he wore a stride unit, the foot pod. And it's interesting how he ran between 300 and 320 watts in both those races off the bike. That's pretty much where he stayed, right in that range. Paced himself very well with that. Now, so much of if any of your athletes train for an Ironman, they think, well, I, here's what I want to run off the bike, the pace that I want to run off the bike. Well, you don't really know what that pace is. And you can say, well, I want to run four minutes a K off the bike. Well, you can want to, but that does, are you really going to do it? So many factors based upon the course, the intensity, the weather, the 
the nutrition that you did will affect, you know, how, how well you actually run off the bike. So what we've always tried to do is we've tried to find, we've tried to define that intensity off the bike in terms of a pace, but pace is, there is no correlating pace. But if we look at it from a power value, Matt Russell knows if he goes out and runs between 300 and 320 watts on his long runs, that that's specifically the intensity that he will run off the bike. And if he runs at that intensity and he finds like he's getting much more speed per watt in training at that, at that small 20 watt range, well, I do believe that there is a direct correlation of, or, or training effect that he will run faster off the bike in Ironman if he, if he does his long runs at that wattage range and improves his speed per watt. So that's just one example of where I think we're going. Now, does that mean every athlete needs to go out and run in those wattages? No, because those numbers are specific to Matt Russell. And the only reason I even know that is because I have the data from his, from his races. So you have to, if you're, if you're an athlete, you have to go and collect the data and then come back and look at it and learn and see what you see. And then you have to make some conjectures and hypothesis and say, well, I think if I train like this, I should get this training effect. Is that really the case? We'll see. Stride is doing something too, where they're they're measuring the the leg spring stiffness of an athlete. Uh, what we find are athletes that that are are fast runners have very high uh, leg stiffness. And so, one of the things I know I can tell you that we're doing with Ben Canute is we're using that. So far, I know USA Triathlon is certainly collecting that data on him to see are we improving his leg spring stiffness because we feel that if we do, he'll be a better runner. So, now. It's still conjecture because this data is so new that I can't prove it yet. I just have to try and, and see over time. And that's, that's the thing. We are, so your original question was, are we there yet? Are there big breakthroughs and the ways to use this? The potential is extremely high. Is it, are we there? I think we're three, four years away. But those that embrace it now and use it and leverage it can probably identify where, where the training response is, is coming and measure that training response in a new way. And if that's an effective way and they can find and prove that it's effective, well, now you can continue that type of training in order to know, instead of guessing, are we, are we really improving? You can see it and therefore hopefully the results show. It's exciting times for sure. And I'm sure that the triathletes that are collecting this kind of data can continue to follow your writing for training peaks and, and other triathlon media to see what the latest, latest news on the subject is and, and how they can use it and improve they're running from using the power data. So with that, let's move into the rapid fire question segment. Just uh, five short questions with short answers. So are you ready? Mm -hmm. Sure. What's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to triathlon? <laughs> Believe it or not, they've been two of the books I've written. <laughs> <laughs> um, triathlon Science, I co-edited with Joe Friel. And I've used a lot of the things in that. I still keep that one. And even my book, I mean, the numbers that I, I found and the things in that, I still keep right next to my desk and, and leverage. So it's funny. I, uh, I find myself a lot of times like, yeah, I wrote about that somewhere. So I go through, uh, there it is, table 5.1, page this. And a lot of times I'm talking to my athletes, my athletes have questions. I mean, there's so many numbers that have gone through my head that I don't even bother trying to keep them straight. So I keep those there. So uh, I also, let me think, I'm so big on mentality in athletes now that I'm certainly reading some great books. A new book that I, I read recently was called Nerve, uh, and it's about the physiology of fear and things and anxiety and, and athletes and performance. Why do some people crumble in high pressure situations and others not? So 
I would say that's that's a great book yes, as well. Yeah, and when we had Joe Friel on a, a month or so ago, he said that the one thing that he wished he had done earlier in his career was learn more about sports psychology. So it's a really big and important topic. So what's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? Oh, power meters. There's no doubt. There's, yep. there's just so much to learn from and great ways to compare different athletes. Everything I do is, even in my juniors, I mean, I still look at, okay, this was the front pack of the youth elite girls in the United States three years ago. And now I have new girls that come in and I can see the sport's changing. <laughs> the sport is changing. The demands to stay at the front are increasing. So the things you learn from that are just, just incredible. And hopefully we run power meters continue to do the same for us. And what's the personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Oh, just trying to be consistent, I would say, with what I do. I would say, too, I've always, in everything that I've tried to do, I've always tried to be one step ahead. Not just saying, okay, we're great right here, but really trying to foresee what's what's the next change. Whether it's in business, whether it's in data and technology, whether that's just everything. You know, even, even with my boys, you know, raising my two sons, okay, they're here. What's the next thing I got to be prepared for, you know, for them to do, me to be a better parent in that moment, all those things. And I, I think when you do that, you find you're probably never really satisfied and you're always, you know, when new things come along, you're, you're more apt to learn. So, yeah. And uh, what's the hardest workouts you've done over the last six months or so? Hardest workouts, boy, you're going to, you're going to make me feel lazy here. <laughs> That's been the one great thing about retiring from professional racing is I don't feel the need to go out and suffer anymore. <laughs> Just some long rides, uh, some running, uh, I've, you know, I've hopped in a few five K's, 10 K's and, and some things like that. Uh, CrossFit I did for a while. I don't know how many of your listeners done that. That was, let me tell you something. I've, I've never done a 10, 15 minute workout that has absolutely blasted me like a CrossFit workout does. I mean, and I, I ran track and cross country in college and I could finish a mile, no problem, but sometimes five, 10 minutes in, uh, in a CrossFit workout and, and I'm shaking the rest of the day. Crazy. So those are, those are some pretty intense ones too. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting answer. And uh, finally, what do you wish you had known or wish you had done differently at some earlier point in your triathlon career? I wish I had adopted technology earlier, even in college when I ran instead of looking at my training log, going back and looking at my training log and, you know, that was written words, you know, if I had had files, but I mean, we didn't even have GPS back then, you know, when I was running in college in the nineties. So if I would have been able to have some data like that in my early professional career, uh, even my amateur triathlon racing career, uh, I think I would have, you know, I would have really seen where I would have seen where I was at and, and had some cool stuff. A funny story in 2007, I want to say 2006, I decided I needed to do something different in Xterra. I was racing Xterra against Conrad Stoltz and all these other guys. And then I, uh, I was like, well, I'm never going to beat these guys, the Josiah Medows and them just racing the way they race. So I was like, man, there's gotta be something I can do that's different, you know, and, and mountain biking was kind of introducing all this new technology. And I was like, there's this new thing called a 29er. So I said, I think I'm going to go try this 29er wheel. And I'll never forget. I showed up to the race with a 29er mountain bike and all those guys laughed at me. Connor and Stoltz, all of them just thought it was the funniest thing. Like, what are you doing? And I ended up double flatting in the race. And so, and of course, since I'm the only one with a 29er, no one can toss me a tube or anything. And, and so I, I just laughed and I was like, man, I'm, 
I really felt like that was going to be the advantage that I needed to offset. And lo and behold, here we, you know, you go to a, a mountain bike race now or an Xterra and there, if you see a 26 inch wheel, it's, it's, or a 650 for those that are international listeners, um, you know, that's rare for a mountain bike now. Most of them are all the 700 C 29ers, we call it. So, uh, the sport has definitely changed. And I think I was just a little bit ahead of my time with that and probably didn't give it enough of a, of a run. I kind of jumped off to Ironman, but, uh, to think, I mean, cause the, the way that bike could accelerate or maintain a speed was it couldn't accelerate as much, but man, it could just hold speeds that were way faster. So, uh, and even descending, it was better, all sorts of things. So that's kind of one of the things, uh, say to wrap up, uh, always trying to foresee what the next step is, what the next tool is, what can I do to really break through? I think, I think that was uh, one piece of equipment that I was right on. I just didn't, uh, didn't, didn't see it through enough. Yeah. So Jim, thank you for coming on. This has been extremely interesting. Can you just, uh, end, end it off by telling the listeners where they can find out more about you and, and what you got going on, anything you want to plug? Sure. I'm, uh, available. You can find me at coachvance.com. And uh, I also do a podcast called Technology and Sports. I've got a new episode coming out next week. That's that. What we do is we actually look at what are those new companies, new breakthroughs, different things that affect sport, the way we approach sports, how coaches use use certain technology or approach training. I've uh, I've interviewed uh, a one of the strength and conditioning coaches of an NBA franchise. So uh, you know just how they training all those different athletes and and things and the stresses they deal with so uh, it's cool it's been a cool undertaking and uh, i'm excited about the future of that one and yeah and like i say uh, the books will be translated here soon and people haven't gotten a copy i'm sure they can find them amazon or even through my website so coachvance.com all right that's it i hope you enjoyed that interview i certainly enjoyed talking to jim there are a few things that stood out to me, especially as you heard in the outtake from the episode at the start. I really enjoyed what he said about how confidence at the start of the race is the number one determiner for race success. And that's something that I myself strongly believe in as well. And which is why you should use the data. You, you can use data to increase that confidence when you see that your key workers are progressing or your key metrics are rising that's when you know that you can be confident in the training that you've done so i really enjoyed that and also the discussion about running power meters i'm very much on the fence of getting one myself now because i'm i do believe what jim said that they are going to revolutionize running i'm not sure when but definitely this is something we'll see more about in the future and finally one thing that that i think stood out was when jim said that those coaches that refuse to use data and and see it as i don't know not pure triathlon they want to make believe that they have some magic formula and that data is a record of truth to really see if you're progressing or not. So so that was a, an interesting perspective and, a, and I think a very valid perspective as well. Before closing off the show, I have a listener question from Sarah and uh, I'll kind of paraphrase it because it's a pretty long one and we had a, a few emails going back and forth as well. But essentially, Sarah writes that... Uh, Swimming is her best discipline. She's okay with front crawl and can easily do that for the sprint distance. Uh, but her problems with triathlons are her lifestyle, then that work gets in the way. So scheduling, training, and 
lack of confidence can both lead to problems staying motivated. And she's 47 years old and overweight, and that leads to concerns about injury prevention. And she has had injuries in the past as well. So she's also mentioning that. She's fine with biking, not the fastest, but able to cycle proficiently, but had a bad fall a few years ago with and in which she hurt her arms. So she's not using cleats at the moment and will stay on, on regular pedals for the foreseeable future. And running is her weakest discipline as she hasn't spent much time doing it and she's worried that it will get her to injuries. She can run a 5k very, very slowly with one or two minute breaks and is focusing on building that up. And she plans to join a club in a few months or a month or so when she's a bit more comfortable with running because being around people motivates her. To that I responded, thank you Sarah for your question. She also writes by the way that the podcasts are very good. Thank you, thank you for that. Hope you can go and uh, give us a review on iTunes. That would really help the show a lot. So my answer to Sarah when, when I responded back to her was that for staying motivated, ask yourself two simple questions. Why did you start doing triathlons? Is it the health benefits, the personal challenge or something else? Knowing your why in triathlon is, is really important and keep that top of mind. You can maybe just write it down and tape it to the fridge or something to make sure that it, it stays top of mind and, and staying motivated will, will be easy when you do that. And even beyond that, having some specific goals, whether it be finishing a race or finishing a race in a certain time, or even just having the goal of training a certain number of times per week can help you stay motivated and enjoy the training long term. For injury prevention, I'm a big fan of core training, and I have a core training program that I'll link to in the show notes that that I highly suggest that, that you, Sarah, and anybody else that's interested in triathlon-specific core training routines go and have a look at it will be in the show notes and uh, it has three different routines for different levels that you can you can complete in 20 minutes and a couple of times a week maybe three times a week if you are really worried about injuries is more than enough so that that is one thing that i definitely recommend and for running form in general or running in general actually i have a an article on the website that i'll link to as well which uh, has several tips on running technique for example not overstriding is probably the big one so don't make take too long strides make sure that your foot strike your foot hits the ground right beneath your hip that that is the most common problem it's not about whether you're a toe striker or a heel striker or a midfoot striker, it's about where your foot hits the ground in your gait cycle. And that should be beneath your hip. So don't overstride is the big point there for running and injury prevention. And regarding work getting in the way, I wrote that I recommend training in the morning because when things pop up, which they will, if you have already done your training, that's not what gets skipped it's going to be something else so so that's the best way to make sure that you get your training in and then about biking and biking on uh, without cleats and uh, clipless pedals at the moment i said that since it sounds like you're planning on going back at some point but you don't have a definite timeline for it i'd suggest do it sooner rather than later the anxiety is not going to get any better by waiting so just give it a go and have somebody who's knowledgeable about who knows basically how to how to clip in and and clip out be with you and train in a parking lot or something like that so that you can get your confidence up in a safe 
environment that, that would be my suggestion but but not to wait any longer because it's not gonna get better by by waiting just get started and try it out one step at a time and going back to the run a little bit for runners like you we also our email discussion went a bit back and forth and you later said that you run usually a 45 minute workouts and i suggest that for you it would be beneficial to right to run fewer or shorter workouts, I should say, but run more times per week. So maybe instead of running two workouts of 45 minutes per week, do three workouts of 20 to 25 minutes starting out and then slowly, slowly increase that duration of those workouts. And for runners like you, I would usually give those workouts as run-walk workouts in the beginning. So that could be, if it's a 25-minute workout, it could be five times four minutes slow running and one minute walking. It could be a pretty brisk walk, but... But that's basically what I would do in your situation for the run. And also one thing to remember, which Wendy Mader mentioned in episode four as well, is regarding joining a club. I mean, it's absolutely great. You get to be around other like-minded people. Perfect. Just make sure that the training that you do is is really planned for you specifically and don't just follow along with anybody else's program because that might be a cause of concern. It could cause injuries if you do too much too soon by following a program that's not geared to your current abilities. So I would go back and listen to that episode as well where we talk with Wendy Mader about it. That's episode four. And we'll have that on thattriathlonshow.com, of course, along with these show notes. If you want your question answered, actually Sarah has got her question answered by email, but I also wanted to share it with you guys and uh, with Sarah's permission, of course, so that you can you can get something out of it. But if you want your question answered by me, then you can just send me an email to michael, with a K, at scientifictriathlon.com and I'll get back to you and maybe answer it on the podcast as well. That's it for this episode of That Triathlon Show. In the next episode, we'll talk to Kim Schwabenbauer about nutrition for triathletes. I highly recommend that you listen to that episode. Anybody can get a lot out of that. In the meantime, remember to subscribe to the show so that you automatically get the new episodes when they're released so you don't miss anything because we're trying to stick to a two episodes per week schedule here. So so to make sure that you don't miss anything, hit that subscribe button. Also, please go to iTunes and rate and review if you enjoyed the show and tell your friends about it. Of course, remember to go to thatdraftlandshow.com to get the show notes for this episode and listen to all the other episodes that we have. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you soon. In the meantime, keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.